Lord, I want to thank you first for aid. I want to thank you for giving us such a past of strength and yet humility and gentleness. And Lord, I want to thank you that he is a man who digs in deep to your word, Lord. I want to thank you that everything he brings, he enables us, Lord, to catch a fresh vision and to really grasp something for you. So Lord, I pray that this morning, as he gives out what you've laid on his heart, what his spirit for us, Lord, I pray that each of us will have that ability to grasp something new, to grasp a deeper understanding, Lord, to be challenged and yet encouraged. So, Lord, just be with Aid as he speaks now. Keep him clear, Lord. Keep him full of your spirit as he gives out this morning. Blessing on him now, Lord. Amen. Good morning, church. Good morning, Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, been, um, it's been a couple of weeks since I preached. It's been, I haven't preached since Easter because uh, I had a little holiday. And then last week I was in Plymouth. So thank you, everyone, that was praying for us when we went down to Plymouth. We had a really good time and the Lord was clearly busy. Um, and I had Matt and Liz to, to, to be my backup, um, which was really nice. I just thought all, all people worth listening to should have an entourage, shouldn't they? So I, I decided to bring one. I thought it might help. And uh, as Rebecca's already mentioned, we are making our way through our preaching series on the Sermon on the Mount. She actually said we've been going on for a long time. I don't think she meant that in the way of, you know, our preaching has been a bit like they're going on a bit. Um, it's just been, we've been preaching this series since October, and we're now coming towards the end. And uh, I, th- I think it's been a very formative preaching series. Jesus' words, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, have the ability to shape lives. They, they, they knock off our rough edges, don't they? It's been a challenging series. It's challenged me, because um, I've had to dig into it in order to preach out of it, but... Also, when I've heard the others as well, and, and we've got into these words, Jesus' words are very powerful. And they're powerful to form something that Jesus has in his heart, of a vision of this community of the kingdom of God. What Jesus has in his heart and his mind as he's preaching this Sermon on the Mount is the most beautiful community that the world has ever seen. It is It is a remarkable vision that Jesus has. And we've come all the way through chapters 5 and 6 of Matthew, and we're now beginning chapter 7, and we're on the home straight. This is the last little bit of the Sermon on the Mount. We've got another couple of weeks, and then we're going to move on to something else. So there's a little bit more forming to do, a little bit more shaping of our lives. There's a little bit more of our character as Christians, and as, as a church, and as the people of God, that needs to come under the teaching of Christ. And uh, to that effect, I'm going to pray. Father, we do thank you that these words have been handed to us. They've made it all the way across 2,000 years. And they've been placed in our hands like ancient treasures. But are so relevant for today. Lord, these words, are the, they have just as much power to accomplish what you intended when you released them today as they did in the first century. 
with the first ears that heard these words. Lord, they are full of your glory. They are full of your power. They are full of your grace and your love for us. And so this morning as we hear your word and as we spend time before your word, we do ask that your words would be powerful. Lord, I want to change. I want to be part of this vision that you have for your people. I want to be part of the kingdom of God. I want my life to line up with what you see. And so, Lord, start with me, but I pray that every person here that is hungry to be an authentic part of the kingdom and have the Holy Spirit work on our, our lives so that they become more beautiful for you, Lord, I pray that th these words will be powerful. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, let's turn to Matthew and chapter 7, and we're going to go from verse 1. We're doing, today, we're just looking at verses 1 to 6. And in my Bible, it's entitled, Judging Others. Jesus said, Do not judge, so that you yourself will not be judged. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, there's a lot there. There's a lot of imagery there, isn't there? And we're going to look into that. But let's start with verse 1. Very simple. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. The word judge here is, in the Greek, it's krino. It, it, it's where we get words like criticize and discriminate. It basically means to find fault and to be able to name it as a fault. Do not be a fault finder so that you will not have your life scrutinized and have everybody else finding fault in you. That your life will not be judged in the same way. There is a parallel verse in Luke 6 and verse 37, and it's worth looking at that alongside it. Luke 6, verse 37. This time it says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. So whereas in Matthew, it is kind of cause and effect... In Luke, it's a promise. Do not judge, and I promise you, you will not be judged. That gets my attention. Whenever there's a, an invitation or a promise in the Word, it gets my attention because I think, actually, there's something here for me. And actually, Jesus does appeal to our self-interest. He could just say, don't judge, because it's not what to do in the kingdom. But he doesn't just say that, does he? He says, if you don't want to be judged, don't do it. Don't do it. 
So do you like being judged? Don't do it then. That's the end of my message. No. Um, <laughs> that's how he starts. And then verse 2, it says, For in the same way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. The question that comes out of this is, how do you like to be judged? Or if, you, if, you, if someone has to judge your life, how would you have someone judge your life? How would you have God judge your life? What kind of measure would you like God to use? What kind of grace would you like him to show you? When people point out your faults, it's not nice, is it? If you've got someone that is in your family, or someone you work with, someone that's in your, your immediate culture around you, in your immediate um, community, and they're just somebody that is a real fault finder. They just love to just put their finger on, on defects in other people. They're, they're not the greatest people to hang out with for too long, are they? Do you find yourself distancing yourself from people that are just natural fault finders? Well, I think as we look at it, we're going to find that there's a little bit of that person in all of us. Mm -hmm. um, but some people have just a real critical spirit. And we, we can probably all recall someone now that actually I've found that, that particular issue very difficult in somebody. It happens. Now, it says here that we're going to be judged. And by the standard that we use, it's going to be measured to us. You see, God sees all things. He knows how we are judging other people. He knows what's going on in our hearts. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, it says that everything is exposed before God. Everything in all creation is known to God. The hidden things and the obvious things. God does know your thoughts and he does know your actions. He does know your history. That, that isn't to say that God is... is the big guy in the clouds with the big stick waiting to hit you and waiting to catch you out. He is this judge. It's not his, his character. It's not what he's like. But he does know everything. And he does know what you're like. And he does know how you speak and think about other people. And he does know the judgments you pass on other people. He does know. God is taking notes. And I don't think God is a, a, a judgmental God on one condition that we're not judgmental people because he said I will, I'm willing to be that God if you will spend your whole life condemning the people around you and you will dish out harsh judgment on everybody around you if that is the standard that you choose to live by justice demands that God will say okay this is, this is how you have judged the people around you let us judge your life by the same measure. Oh, can you imagine? Imagine getting to that point and God says, okay, let's have a look at your life. And we're going to measure your life by how you've measured other people's lives. We're going to find fault as you have found fault and we're going to extend grace as you have extended grace. What a thing to face. Imagine just bringing it a bit closer 
to the end of every day. At the end of every day, you sit down with God and you appraise the day. And the, the deal is, however you have extended grace and mercy and thought about other people and how you've judged other people, that is how God has agreed to deal with you at the end of every day. How would you like God to be with you at the end of every day? Well, if I were to sit down with God 10 minutes at the end of every day and just look over my life and how I've dealt with people, and that he would use that as the criteria for how he deals with me, I think I will get kinder quicker. I would get kind very quickly. I would get very gracious very quickly because I would want God to be very gracious with me. I would really want God to be able to sit down with me at the end of the day and I would love it if God was just first very loving and, and want to build me up as a person. I want to just tell me that my, my inherent value to him, to see the, 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 the beauty that he sees in me. I'd like him to tell me about that and I'd like him to encourage me. Especially if I've had a hard day. I'd like him to say, hey, you, did, you gave your all today. Well done. I'd like that. And I'd really like if he would just show me what my character's like from his perspective in a loving way. I'd love him to say like 20 positive things about me before he dealt with some of the things that he knows and I know weren't quite right. I would. I'd like him to build up my spirit. And then if there was something that he had to deal with with me, something that I did wrong, some way that I was not good with somebody, some thought pattern I had, something, some issue in my life, some sin pattern in my life, I'd love him to say, now, come on, there's something in your life we need to deal with. And I'd love him to talk in terms of me being released from that thing so that I can know freedom. And then to empower me and to give me strategies, ways that I can begin to deal with this thing and have his love come right into that ugly place in my life and begin to shine his light on it and empower me to do something about it. And then I'd love his commitment the next day to, to, to go again and to help me in that area and all the other areas of my life. And to never give up. That's how I'd like God to be with me. And that 10 minutes at the end of every day. What does that mean for me? Every day, in the way that I think about people and in the way that I interact with people. If I want that to be the criteria of how God measures my life and how he's willing to work with me, how I have to be that way with those people that I live amongst and work amongst. That sets the criteria for my day, doesn't it? I would rather keep short accounts like that on a daily basis than leave it all up to Judgment Day, wouldn't you? That's a gamble. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. By the same measure that you measure other people, God is willing to measure you. And he says it in other places, doesn't he, about forgiveness. Remember we talked about the unmerciful um, debtor and how this man is forgiven a huge amount of money and then he takes his fellow slave who owes him a tiny bit of money and he tries to get the money out of them. And the master hears about this who has forgiven the first slave huge amount of debt and then he is so angry. He said, I forgave you all that debt. How could you not do the same for your brother? And so he then judges him. God is willing to do that. 
and God is willing to judge you graciously. And then he tells, he, he then goes into teaching mode. Jesus has given out these statements and he goes into teaching mode. So verses three to five. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is still in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In verse 3, why do you take the speck out of your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is your own eye? He's talking about something which is human nature. It is human nature to notice the faults in each other. It's easy to see faults in other people. And this is what we do as human beings. We can't help it. We see stuff, don't we? In each other. But here he says, firstly, that's one part of human nature. You do that. And I think we all need to own that. We do that. We find faults in each other. But then he says, why? Why do you do it? Why, why do you make it a habit? We can get addicted to issue spotting in each other. Because when we see it, when we see issues in each other, it, it does something for us. It, it, we can feed off the contrast. When we see something that's not right in somebody else, it makes us feel first wise because we've spotted something. And secondly, it makes us feel more righteous because in comparison to what we've seen, we hold ourselves usually to be less at fault than what we see in somebody else. And it, makes, it gives us a little kind of kick actually, a self-righteous kick. That's what it does. And Jesus is saying, why do you do that? Why do you make it your business to find fault in everybody else? And then he goes on to say, why do you try and fix everybody? Verses four and five. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? And behold, there is a log in your own eye. This is Jesus' wonderful sense of humour. There's a plank in your eye, and you're there fiddling about in somebody else's eye, trying to take the speck out. I love it. It's such a brilliant, brilliant use of language. We love to try and fix people. Some people do this more than others. But we, we love to sort of see it as our business to fix everybody else. Of course, Jesus is using figurative language here. We can't all simultaneously be the ones with the log and the ones with the speck at the same time, can we? Jesus is saying to everybody, everyone else has the speck, you have the log. But that can't be true of everybody at the same time, or all the time. But what he's trying to say is, this is how I want you to consider things. This is how I want you to approach this whole issue of trying to judge one another and trying to deal with what we see in other people's lives. We can't see other people's hearts. We can't see the wholeness of what's going on in other people's lives. We can't. God can. We can't. We see a small measure. We see the tip of the iceberg. But actually, what, what someone's life consists of is way more complex 
and way more far-reaching than we can possibly imagine. And you cannot assess somebody's life on the little bit you see or on the tiny bit you've noticed. We can't do it. And therefore we have to trust that God can see and trust him to deal with what we see in the way that he asks us to do it. Because we can't see all in our own eyes. And what Jesus says is, I want you to consider what's going on in your heart and in your life as being far more significant and far bigger than what you see in other people. Ours is always the greater sin. When you see something which is a defect or a fault or a sin or something that you can't stand in somebody else, the chances are that there is the same sin or a variation of it in your own heart. That's what Jesus is saying. And the very fact that we have that sin in our hearts blinds us from being able to see it. You can't see clearly with a plank in your eye. There's something about the way that it is a huge issue in our lives that prevents us from being able to see that it's there at all. We've just got to believe that this is how God is asking us to look at our own lives. We're not looking so much for the sin in our own lives as we are for the, the sin in others. It's human nature. And Jesus says, I want you to reverse it. When you see sin in other people's lives, it is an indicator that there may be something going on in your life. So before you even begin to attempt trying to sort that person out, I want you to get alone with God and I want you to reflect. Because I want you to see where that same pattern is playing out in your own life. And it takes God to show us. Because we are spectacularly blind to our own sin sometimes. Is that true? We... We love to see ourselves in a good light, and quite, quite right, we should. There's enough uh, knocking down of our characters and our spirits from other people and from the enemy. I like to agree with God that he thinks I'm a marvellous person, so that helps me <laughs> to, to move in that direction and to believe a little bit in myself, because that's how God sees me, and that's really important. But actually, it's so important to see when there is something really wrong as well, because whether it's a speck or it's a log, it's important, it's in my eye. And I need to deal with it. But God has to show us. There's a wonderful um, example of this in 2 Samuel in chapter 12. In fact, let's turn there because it's worth seeing it. 2 Samuel in chapter 12. So it's, if you're new to the Bible, this is in the Old Testament. It's after 1 Samuel, funnily enough. And it's before you get to Kings and Chronicles. So, 2 Samuel in chapter 12. We've got a situation where King David has just sinned spectacularly. He's had an affair with Bathsheba, while his best mate, who happens to be Bathsheba's husband, is on the front line fighting a war on his behalf. And he has sex with Bathsheba, she gets pregnant, and then he tries a cover-up mission by essentially asking Uriah, who is his best mate, to come back from the front line. And then he tries to get Uriah to have sex with his wife, but he won't because he's not going to do that when his mates are all struggling away on the front line. He wants to get back there to be alongside 
uh, the rest of his army because he's a man of God. That plan doesn't work. So David sends a death warrant with Uriah to give to the other people, that he, the other commanders that he's working with, saying, send Uriah to the front line and withdraw from him so that Uriah gets killed. He murders his best friend because he committed adultery with his best friend's wife. And then he takes her for himself. That's pretty spectacular. Yet this was the man that was called the man after God's own heart. This was the man that God was happy to say, my son is going to be called the son of David. So there's redemption for all of us, right? It ends well. But after David did that, he carried on his life as normal. He couldn't really see what, that he'd done the wrong thing. His conscience hadn't particularly kicked in. And he carried on saying, well, that's that dealt with at least. Let's move on. And it took the prophet Nathan to come and give him a wake-up call. And the prophet Nathan says, comes to him. He doesn't come and says, David, this is what you've done. and The Lord has got, is going to punish you for this. He doesn't say that. Nathan comes to David. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he, brought, which he bought and nourished, and it, it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat his bread and drink of his cup, and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Ah. Now a traveller came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Ouch. David could spot sin in another so easily. He was able to listen to this story and, and he burned with anger. This man deserves to die. He spotted it straight away, how outrageous this story was. And yet the truth is, this was a speck compared to David's log. This man had done something horrible to his next door neighbour and, and cooked his sheep. David had done way worse than that. And yet he was able, in his self-righteousness, to judge this man and to say this man deserves to die. It took a revelation from God through the prophet Nathan to show David what his heart was like. And he's the man after God's own heart. If it can be that way for David, and he can be so stupid and so blind to his own sin, can it be that way with us? I want to put it to you that it can. We can be spectacularly blind sometimes, and it takes God to show us what our hearts are like. Jesus said, trust me, when you see the speck, you really do need to look for the log in your own eye. So... I love this eye metaphor. It's so rich. The speck is in the eye. I mean, this could, Jesus could be talking about our perspective, how we see the world. This is the lens through which we see. 
And so it could be that those times where we just want to change somebody's perspective. We want them to come around to our viewpoint. We want them to change how they see the world. Take that speck out so that they can see things more clearly. If you could just see things as clearly as I can, it'd be wonderful. <laughs> and maybe sometimes they can see a little bit better than we think they can. But also, eyes are sensitive, aren't they? It's very difficult. Whenever you've got something in your eye, a speck of... It just takes a grain of sand or something, doesn't it? And how much does that hurt? It's an irritant. Who do you ask to take something out of your eye when you've got a splinter in there? Someone you trust. Yeah. You don't ask any old person. Some old sausage-fingered person to go <laughs> around there. You, you're going to ask somebody you trust... Somebody that might know what they're doing. Somebody that's going to take care with your eye. Lives are like that. They're very sensitive. You don't meddle with people's lives clumsily. When you're putting your finger on the stuff of people's lives, when you're pointing out things, always be aware that lives are incredibly sensitive. They're very easily damaged. You can hurt people really, really easily. And what's more, some people have had clumsy treatment in the past. People that have been critical, that have pointed stuff out, and it's been more like poking them in the eye than helping them get the thing out. And some people carry that in their history. They carry that, in, and, and it creates a fear, and it creates people are very easily crushed if they've had a critical person in authority and they haven't been healed yet. And actually, you can be the most secure person in the world, and your lives are still sensitive. My life is still sensitive. And there are issues in my life, and there are issues in yours that aren't resolved yet. And we will sometimes see them in each other. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it is our job automatically to steam in there and deal with it, even though we see things. Sometimes I think that's what people think the pastor's for, pointing stuff out, steaming in there and dealing with it. And there are times when that's really important. But not always, because you know what? The Holy Spirit isn't always immediate, is he? When there's an issue that he highlights in your life, does he, that he sees in your life, does he always steam in there and deal with it straight away? Can you imagine if on the day that you prayed the sinner's prayer, in the back of why Jesus... <laughs> that suddenly the Holy Spirit came to you and said, right now, everything that's wrong with your life, we've got to sort it out immediately. You know? But you do this, you do that, you do the other. As of tomorrow, that's got to change, otherwise you can't be part of the kingdom. He doesn't do that, does he? There are some issues that he leaves dormant for decades, and he doesn't seem all that bothered to deal with it immediately. He is incredibly patient. And sometimes he likes to bring us to a point whereby, where we are ready and open to receive that ministry he has, to gently, sensitively, carefully take it out. That thing that has been like a grain of sand in the eye all our lives. He knows his perfect timing and he's willing to wait. So should we be, sometimes. We should ask the Lord, Lord, like a grain of sand, would this work its own way out? If... 
if I can't reach it, or if, now, if, if I don't have the level of trust with this person, I've not been given the right or the responsibility or the place to actually meddle with this person's life, can I just pray for them and ask that this issue that I see that is actually really hard for them will work its own way out? Because you know the speck comes out eventually, doesn't it? Yeah. I used to be a woodworker, got stuff in the eye every day. Used to pull the top lid over the bottom one to get it out. But eventually your eye waters enough and the thing kind of comes out. And you can just wipe it away. So it is with us and the Lord. He is often so gracious that he would just let the tears of our life slowly wash away that thing that has been dealing with us. And in the end we just don't want it and it just tumbles out. He's a gracious God. So we've got to take care. Time's ticking, and I want to get into this enigmatic verse 6. Do not throw what is holy to dogs, and do not throw, cast your pearls before swine, or they might trample them under your, their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. What does that mean? It's like a riddle. Jesus is good at uh, getting our interest up and asking us to wrestle with his words, because they don't... We don't always know on the surface exactly what Jesus means. And I've read so many different interpretations of this because I wanted to sort of get a a perspective of what what the ideas are out there of what this this verse means. And so they're they're many and varied. So I I don't think we're going to get to exactly the heart of it this morning. And uh, I believe that the Holy Spirit has a way of applying these things in different ways in different circumstances, as this is the Word of God, the manifold Word of God, and therefore it's many-folded and many-faceted, and you can look at different bits of it at different times. So you may, this may have been a useful verse to you in the past, and you may have interpreted it in a completely different way, and God's used it in your life, and I'm not, I don't want to undermine that. Just stick with it if that's how the Lord has, has um, interpreted it for you. But I... This, There's three that I want to bring out of ways we can interpret this. That which is holy, that which is sacred and precious, could be the gospel. Do not take that which is holy and cast it before dogs, before swine. In this interpretation, we could say that the gospel is the holy thing, the pearl, and actually, when we cast cast the gospel or give what is holy and, and wonderful to people that really just don't want it, they just are not ready for the gospel. They don't want anything to do with it. And so what they're going to do is they're going to trample on this gospel of yours and this Jesus you're talking about. Uh, and they might just get really heckled up and come and attack you as well. And say, hey, you self-righteous. How, how dare you say your truth is better than mine? You might get that. And that happens. And didn't Jesus say elsewhere... Uh, if people don't receive your message, shake off the dust from your feet and move on because some people are just not ready to hear it, even though it's wonderful news. And if you're here here to hear it this morning, I can tell you the gospel is a wonderful thing that will transform your life. So that could be one way of interpreting this. Don't cast the gospel and waste your whole life and your whole ministry where it's not welcome and, and, and God is not doing a work. We are to discern where the Holy Spirit is already doing something and cooperate with him. When the Holy Spirit has already set the door ajar, that's the door you go through. You don't just keep hammering on the door that isn't going to open. That's just good use of time. You could see it that way. You could see it that the pearl, the holy precious thing, is the truths of the kingdom. Because we're, that's what we're learning about here in the Sermon of the Mount. And actually the dogs, the, or the pigs, are the Pharisees. 
Do not cast the, the precious things of the kingdom before those who are not going to want to receive them. And ultimately, did they not turn and trample on his words and tear him to pieces? Perhaps this is a prophecy. And actually, he does use the word hypocrite in there, doesn't he? In verse 5, you hypocrite. Every other time Jesus uses that word, he's using it against the Pharisees. And who more exemplifies what it means to have a log in their own eye, but try and nitpick the specks in everybody else's eye, than the Pharisees that we read about in the Gospels. <laughs> we can read about it that way. Don't cast what is beautiful things of the kingdom and the authentic things about life in God before those who are only concerned with rules and religion and being self-righteous. Because it's not going to get you anywhere. They won't value what you say and they're going to turn and they'll do all they can to tear you down. Could mean that. Then there's the Roger Forster interpretation, which I really like. So I want to share that with you. And that is that the pearl, the holy thing, the thing that is precious, is somebody's character, somebody's life. And this actually follows the thread of Jesus' teaching through this thing about judging each other, through this passage, about how we're to handle one another's lives and how we're to judge each other. So the pearl... The precious thing is somebody's character, somebody's life. And the dogs, the swine that will not respect and value this thing, are human beings at their worst. When they are ripping someone's character apart as a pack. And they're treading on people's characters or lives. And Jesus is saying, don't take someone's character, someone's life, and throw it out onto the table when the people are having a slanging match about somebody. Not slanging match, they're, they're critiquing somebody, they're ripping someone's character apart. When they're having a sort of character assassination session and everyone's coming into agreement about how horrendous this person is, whether it's a boss or a manager or a colleague, and you find yourself in that situation where somebody's life, someone's name is cast into the ring and everyone is just having a go and giving their tuppence worth about, yeah, and then there's this about them, and then there's that about them. And they're trampling on somebody's good name. Don't do that, Jesus is saying. Don't cast the pearls, the precious things, things that are holy and precious to God, before those who will mistreat people's characters and mistreat people's names. It's as though Jesus is saying, I want you to be the one who dives into the ring and grabs the pearl of someone's character and protects it with everything you can. To be the one that says, well, aren't we all, when someone is, is levelling something against someone else, and just bring it back to us. To say, yeah, yeah, we've probably all encountered bits of that, but then look at what they've done. Look at the good stuff. And just throw ten things in that's good about that person. The bottom line is, are people's characters safe in your hands? Are the people that you know safe in your hands? Or could it be that the people that you know might just be in danger of you being in that ring trampling on their character with the others? Because Jesus says, sooner or later, guess whose character is going to be in the ring? They will turn and they'll tear you to pieces as well. If you've created a culture whereby that is okay and the boss is always being run down or so-and-so is always being slagged off at the fag break, what happens? 
or in the playground, or wherever you are. If that's the culture that's created, what, sooner or later, your name's going to be in the ring. And everything that is bad about you, that people have seen, all the specks in your eye, or the logs as they've seen them, are going to just be showcased before the group. And they'll just tear you down. That's what happens when we create that culture. What would it look like if Christians were known to be those who hold people's lives carefully? If, actually, it's the Christians in my life who I know I can trust with my life, and I can actually let them see some of the rubbish that I'm struggling with, because I know they're not going to use it against me. Confidentiality is a precious thing, and it's a rare commodity these days. And Jesus is saying, that is how I want you to be. Again, Jesus is appealing to our self-interest. If you do this, you you will spare yourself the trial of being torn to pieces by other people. In verse 6. Genesis 4, verse 9. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain says to God. What was Cain's big sin? He failed to take the responsibility for his brother's life. And he failed to look at the sin patterns that were forming in his own life. He was preoccupied with jealousy And he he put down that responsibility to be his brother's keeper. And ever since that day, that has been part of the human race, where so easily we find that we can just put down that it is my responsibility to care for other human beings around me and to wish the best for them and to see what I can do to make sure they prosper. So how can we apply all this? I'm going to close Now, how can we apply it? Well, the first thing we need to do is to acknowledge that we do see things in each other. We do see faults in each other. I'm really sorry to say this, but I can see faults in some of you. (laughs) And I have to acknowledge that you can see faults in me too. This is the community we live in. This is life. What do I do when I see fault in somebody else and I can see that it's damaging to them? How do we do it Jesus style? Because we have to confront things sometimes, don't we? We do. Otherwise we just let things go that should be dealt with. Sometimes we are in the position of leadership and it is our job to do something about sin patterns or things that are harming the family, or things that are harming the workplace, things that are harming the church. And actually, if you're in a position of leadership, it's your job to be able to say, actually, no, that's not okay. And Jesus is not saying we are never to judge. He's saying, be careful how you judge. And measure yourself by the same criteria. And make sure you're being very, very gentle and very sensitive about how you go about things. So how do we do it Jesus style? Well, firstly, by prayer and reflection. Don't ever attempt. I say this, and I know that I do it, but this is an encouragement to me as much as anyone. Don't ever attempt to sort something out in somebody else's life unless you're willing to look for that same thing in your own. Surely that's what it means to consider the log in your own eye first. (coughs) Measure yourself. And know that you're particularly blind to your own sin and ask the Holy Spirit to show you. 
highlight times in my life or times in my day, today even, that I have been the same thing as what I see in this person. And I guarantee you that when you see a few ways that you're stumbling over the same thing, you will approach that brother or sister in a different way. There will be a grace, there'll be a humility, there'll be a solidarity in the struggle to be a whole person of God. And we need people that will, will have a solidarity with us in our struggle and that will help us in that way, that have dealt with some of the logs in their own eyes, that have understood the grace that is needed. We need wise guides like that. Be that wise guide. So prayer and reflection is the first thing. And then I've stolen, shamelessly, a wonderful acronym from R.T. Kendall. And that's ne- the, the word need, N-E-E-D. What does this person need? And need, N stands for necessary. Is it necessary to deal with this now? Or is there going to be another time? Will this issue work its way out on its own? Do I need to deal with this? Sometimes you do. Sometimes for the good of the whole, for the good of the family, for the good of your work, workplace as a manager, you do. As for the good of the church, you do. Sometimes you don't. So just ask God that question. Is it necessary? E, encourage. Will this lift them up? Will this lift up their hearts? Remember I said, how do you like to be judged? I'd like 10 words of encouragement for one word of rebuke. I would. Because that lifts me up. It builds me up. Have you, can you encourage this person at the same time? Can you encourage them towards the life that they, that, what their life might look like if they dealt with this thing? But, or just encourage them generally. Because when you've built up equity with someone and they know that you're for them, they're more likely to let you fiddle around in their eye or their life, as the case may be. Encourage them. Is it necessary? Will this encourage? Will this energise? Will it empower their spirit? Is this something that's going to lead them out into, into um, greater freedom? Or is this someone that's going to just shut them down and crush their spirit? Will this energise and lead them forward in, in their walk with the Lord? Or will this just sap them of their energy and make them feel deflated? And then, so N-E-E-D, dignity. Will it increase their self-esteem? Will it add value to their lives by speaking about this thing? Or will actually, will it, will it rob them of self-esteem and make them think poorly of themselves? That's a good way to, that's a good checklist, isn't it? Yeah. If you want to meddle with someone else's life. Is it necessary? Will it encourage? Will this energise and will this ascribe dignity to the person? I think that's how Jesus did things. And I think that's how we can do things too. <coughs> Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the way that you do deal with us. Lord, you promise that you will be that good shepherd for us. You will be the one that will lay down your life to set us free. You'll be the one that will value us so highly that you would bleed for us, and indeed you have. Lord, your love is such that 
you hold a vision for our lives in your head and in your heart that you keep calling us back to, which is greater than we deserve. And you have a way of never giving up on us. Your, your love and your commitment to us is irrepressible, however miserably we respond to it sometimes. You never, ever give up. And all you ask us to do is to begin to walk like you do and to see people like you do and to speak and to think like you do. And you're willing to help us to do that by saying how we measure people, the same measure will be applied to us. How we judge, we will be judged. Lord, I and everybody in this room, I believe, would love to know without any question that we are going to receive your mercy and that we receive your grace, and that we are delighted in by you, and that you are working on our lives because of your love for us, and you are knocking off those rough edges, and you are taking the specks out of our eyes, the logs even. So Lord, would you help us to be those people that partner with you in that work? Would you help us to take great care with each other's lives? And would you help us to become those wise people that know how to wait, how to pray, how to reflect. And then just maybe we might be useful enough to help other people to get rid of those things that are such an irritation and hold them back. And may you make your church in this town famous (laughs) for not being a judgmental people, but being a people of grace and a place where you can go for your life to become more beautiful and to be handled with care. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Now let's have the the band back. And we're just going to take a few moments to reflect and just ask the Holy Spirit, just to put his finger on the areas of our hearts and our lives that he wants to work with in the coming week. Amen.